As I start this morning, just a quick public service announcement. I'm sure some have you forgot have forgotten. I won't uh, kind of generalize or be sexist, but I'm guessing most of the men have forgotten. Uh, don't forget, this week is Valentine's Day. Okay. Now, if you are in a relationship, then Valentine's Day, you probably want to do something about that. I would encourage perhaps a gift of some sort. Uh, buy that love of your life something. You don't want to forget it uh, and therefore lose points on that day. So it's Valentine's Day. Get in there. Now, of course, you could be a little bit like my father, who is hopefully not watching this morning, whom I love dearly. But you could be a little bit like my father in that Valentine's Day is my father's birthday. And so as he is wont to say to my mother, what can I possibly buy you when you've already received me? You, you could be like that, and I leave that with you. Uh, I guess buying gifts on Valentine's Day is at least a pretty simple concept. It, it's an easy thing because the theme is already set for you. So you know more or less what to buy. Uh, whether it's flowers, chocolates, candies, books, cards, whatever, uh, it's kind of set there for you. Uh, But don't you hate, not just Valentine's gifts, but think about birthday gifts or Christmas gifts or whatever, don't you just hate trying to buy something for someone who it's impossible to buy something for? Uh, All sorts of reasons, but I remember a couple of years ago, I was invited to a friend's, uh, I kind of knew him, so I used the word friend loosely, I was invited to his 50th birthday. Uh, and so it's a 50th birthday. You can't arrive empty-handed to someone's 50th birthday. You have to bring something. And the challenge was, A, I didn't really know him, so I didn't really know what would land. And B, he was su- is super rich. And that's an important detail when you're trying to buy somebody something. I mean, this dude owns multiple properties, multiple business, investments, all sorts. Uh, His truck broke, and that's a long story, but his truck broke, and he needed to replace it pretty quickly. And he literally walked into one of our local dealerships, put down his credit card, and drove out in a top-of-the-line truck. Now, you all know me if you call White Rock Baptist Church home, and you know I get truck envy, so, you know, that was a challenge for me, and, I mean, my credit card kind of starts to shake in fear in my pocket if I just walk into Costco, let alone into a car dealership. So, so what on earth am I supposed to buy someone who could literally buy whatever he wanted? What do I give to someone where there's nothing I could actually give? Who doesn't need anything? Hold that thought in your mind. We will come back to it in a few moments. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, whether online or in person, the last couple of weeks we have been doing a series through the chapter of Romans 12. So the book of Romans, the chapter 12. Uh, And we've been journeying through under the heading of being right all the time. Or how to be right all the time. The time. In the first week, we looked at the opening of being right with God. And ultimately, I am right with God when I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Romans uses the word righteousness or righteous. 
If I am in Christ, if I have accepted Christ, I am declared right with God because I am righteous. It's actually got nothing to do with me and what I do. It is the work of Jesus. And so therefore, I can be right with God. The following week, we looked at how to be right with self. And being right with self starts with acknowledging whose I am and then who I am. And in the context of Romans and righteousness, whose I am means I belong to God. I am God's child. He loves me and he likes me. And because I am God's child, loved and liked by the creator of all things, so I am a brother and sister, not only with Christ, but with fellow believers. And therefore, if I walk with love and humility, I am able to be right with self. And then last week, we had a look at how to be right with others. And and the passage in Romans points us to seeking unity. To seek unity in the body and not only to seek unity, but then to serve using the gifts that God has given us. So to serve one another. And as I serve, I do so with sincere love for brothers and sisters. And if I do that, I'm able to be right with others. So how do we go on from there? Right with God, right with self, right with others. Well, what you're going to see this week, next week, and the following week is we're circling back to each one of those. And today, I want to make the point that if I am right with God, it leads to right worship. Being right with God leads to right worship. In fact, you can put up Romans chapter 12, verse 1 on the screen so long. Uh, Romans 12, verse 1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters... I'm going to get Romans 12 verse 1 up there. There we go. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So if I go back to my opening illustration of what do I buy someone who has everything, and if I just tweak it a little bit, And I ask, what do you give someone who has no need of anything? Based on Romans 12, verse 1, what can we give God? To whom nothing can be added. Now, thankfully, God has answered that question for us. What God expects of us is worship. We are to give God true and proper worship. How? By offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, That then begs the question, well, what is true worship? Thankfully, Jesus has answered that for us. Now, although the series is in Romans chapter 12, I did warn you that we will look at a couple of other passages, and today is one of those. Because how we answer the question, or, or try and answer that question of how do we offer worship, true and proper worship to God, Jesus has answered that for us. And it's in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to John chapter 4. We're not reading the whole thing. I'm going to paraphrase for a little bit, introduce you to the story. Then we will start in John 10. So in John chapter 4, just to set the context, Jesus is heading from Judea all the way through to Galilee. 
But in order for Jesus to go from Judea to Galilee, he has to pass through Samaria region. Uh, It would be a little bit like if we were here in the BC trying to head to Saskatchewan, we would have to go through Alberta. Now, I know some of you could go, well, we could take the long way around through the United States or we could go uh, through the Yukon. Yes, you could do that, but you would be foolish because you'd be wasting gas. The straight line is the quickest. You're going through Alberta. And so for Jesus to get to Galilee, he has to go through Samaria. And so he stops in Samaria in a town called Sychar to rest. He's tired. He's worn out. He's, he, he needs to just take a break. And scripture tells us that he stops near Jacob's well, just outside the town, while his disciples go in to the town to go and buy food and, and get replenishments and refreshments. It's around noon, as the Bible tells us, an important fact. And while sitting near the well, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Now, we might read through that and not bat an eyelid. We might kind of go, yeah, that just seems normal. A woman's coming out of the town to draw some water. But the noon is a crucial fact. People drew water typically in the cool of the day. So either first thing in the morning or late in the evening. Certainly nobody was going to draw water at noon, the hottest time of the day, to slave, to draw water out of the well, to carry heavy buckets. And so clearly there is something in the story. Why is a solitary woman skipping the crowds to come alone in the heat of the day? And so she's there and she's busy drawing water and Jesus asks her to draw water for him so that he might drink and be refreshed. And this catches her off guard. In verse 9, it's not on the screen, but in verse 9, the Samaritan woman actually says, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for water? And then John adds in brackets, For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. You know, Second Kings chapter 17 records the origin of the Samaritans. Time doesn't permit for a full history lesson today, although it would be interesting and fascinating, but that's just because I'm a history nerd. The Jews believed that the Samaritans were a mixed race who practiced an impure, half-pagan religion. While on the other hand, the Samaritans saw themselves as the keepers of the pure faith, the keeper of the Torah and the true descendants of Israel coming from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. They had their own unique copy of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament that we have, or the first five books of Moses. They believed they alone preserved the original Mosaic religion. Samaritans also had a unique religious practice in terms of they had established their primary worship place or primary worship location as Mount Gerizim. They considered Jerusalem and the temple and the Levitical priesthood to be illegitimate. And can you see the tension? Both groups claiming to be the true descendants, the true Israelites, and yet so different. And so hence the woman's question. Why would you ask me to draw you water? We don't associate with one another. So let's pick up the story in John chapter 4 and verse 10. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And of course, after this point in the story, the disciples return and they're perplexed. They're kind of alarmed and surprised that Jesus is talking to this woman because, again, they know there's a story here. There's no woman coming out at noon to draw water unless there's something. And so maybe she's got a questionable character. So the disciples are a little bit surprised that this but yet Jesus seems re-energized and enthused. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that his food is to do the will of the Father who sent him and to finish his work. The, the woman, meanwhile, runs into town and she goes and spreads word. Come and see this man who told me everything I've ever done. Uh, this person, come and see him. And so the crowds come out to see Jesus. And as they're engaging with him, they ask him, please stay. And he stays with them for two nights. And in the end, the story ends with the, the townsfolk. In verse 41 and 42, because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe you just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What are we to give God? We are to give God worship. What sort of worship? True and proper worship. So what does true and proper worship 
look like? I've got four words for you, or four points this morning. They revolve around four words. If you're taking notes, those words are realize, recognize, repent, and request. Realize, recognize, repent, request. When I say realize, I mean realize that you may be wrong. Realize that you may be wrong. In verse 19 and 20, when the woman says to Jesus, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship in is Jerusalem. And as this conversation between Jesus and this woman, who according to their customs and beliefs is clearly immoral, unfolds, we see obstacles that prevent worship. The obstacle here is the belief that the Samaritans were right, the Jews were wrong. The Samaritans had the right place, the Jews had the wrong place. They thought they had the market on true belief and true worship. Sadly, they were mistaken. And their traditions and beliefs led them to worship incorrectly. They think the important place or the important thing is place and style of worship. How often do we make that same mistake even today? Thinking that worship can only happen in a specific place or with a specific song or hymn. Perhaps we need to recognize or realize that we could be wrong. In fact, when we talk about worship in church, we often make the mistake of thinking worship is only singing. It's the music. And that's an understandable mistake because there's an entire genre of church music simply called praise and worship. And so we think that worship is singing and only singing. Now, make no mistake, worship includes singing, but it is not only There is so much more. In fact, when Jesus is talking to this woman, they don't even talk about singing as a part of worship. Worship is all of life. The very word worship, if you've been in the church for more than a decade, you've heard worship comes from the word worth-ship. And it's about giving worth to the object of my affection. It's about honoring, respecting, Bowing to and giving value and worth to that that I am worshipping. It's glorifying, it's honoring, it's praising. And so worship is that response to God when we focus on the one who created us, who holds our destiny. And as we give worth, as we bow and kneel, we discover that worship ultimately is sacrifice. It is sacrifice of self. In fact, that's why in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, as we read at the beginning, Paul says true and proper worship is to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Paul means here that we are to offer ourselves at all times in an attitude of worship to God. It's saying with John the Baptist that he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. I sacrifice as I worship. So when it comes to right worship that is proper and true, I have to begin by realizing I may get it wrong from time to time. In fact, I might have it horribly wrong. And so as I recognize that I could be wrong, the second part of that is I, sorry, as I realize 
I could be wrong. The second part is to recognize the Savior. Recognize the Savior. Jesus says to the woman, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And after Jesus uh, kind of exposes those false assumptions of worship, he guides this woman into an amazing recognition of who he is, of his glory and his mission. A true worship erupts in the soul of those who understand their need for the Savior. And they're understanding that Jesus is, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the living water that cleanses and quenches the deepest thirst of our soul. And using water as the metaphor for eternal life, Jesus opens her eyes to see him as the promised Messiah and the Savior. If I want to worship correctly, if I want to offer proper and true worship, then daily I must be reminded that Jesus is my Savior and that I need my Savior. It's that old hymn, every hour I need thee. I'm in need of a Savior eternally and moment by moment. In fact, the Apostle Paul echoes this still in the book of Romans, but a couple of chapters before Romans 12. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. It's, it, that is in my sinful nature. For the, I have the desire to do good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then in this confusion, because even all of us are like, wait a minute, where's he, what's he doing? And what's he not doing? And we realize this is just, this dude's confused. And Paul knows that. And Paul utters, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul recognized his need for a savior. You and I, if we want to worship God and offer worship that is proper and true, we need to recognize our need for a savior. And as we recognize our need for a savior, this leads us to the third word, repent. You see, when we, when we realize, we recognize our need for a savior, that we come face to face with our own sin, we realize that the only thing we can do as we come into this place of worship is to repent of sin. And in a way, this happens in John chapter 4. Because Jesus says to the woman, go and call your husband. To which she goes, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're now with isn't even your husband. You've spoken truth to me. Another principle of true worship surfaces here. You see, the Lord Jesus knows all things. He knows this woman's situation by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't assume she's married because he knows she's not. And so Jesus guides her to acknowledge that. You know, at that first question, she says, I have no husband. She confesses. When we recognize the Savior and the need for our Savior, and when we come face to face with Christ's holiness, our sin becomes grossly obvious. In fact, the prophet Isaiah recognized this himself when he saw the glory and magnificence of God. Isaiah says in Isaiah 6 verse 5, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If you want to be right with God, which you are in Jesus Christ, as we saw, then you need to offer right worship. Right worship cannot take place until we confess our sins and we repent of them. And this is a daily need. Because each of us stumble in to sin. And this is the part that I love about this story. Because I see a change in the woman's tone. I see a change in the conversation from when she speaks in verse 15 and then again in verse 18. In fact, I can imagine her shoulders possibly almost falling a little bit. Perhaps her head kind of falling at hearing her sin and her past called out and spoken out like that. I can imagine her heart was daring to hope in the beginning part of the conversation, hearing about this living water. But now she thinks she's speaking to a prophet. And this prophet knows her sin. And this prophet is Jewish and therefore this prophet will disassociate and, and, and leave her. And so she simply responds... I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And you might think that's a weird way of saying it, as they've just discussed about where the right place is to worship. But this is God leading her into this place of discovering salvation, discovering freedom, discovering grace. And as she kind of wrestles with that and, and sort of says, well, I know, I, you know, I hear what you say, but I don't agree with it culturally and historically. And I don't know if I believe that you know what you're talking about. So, you know what? I know the Messiah will come and he'll show us. And Jesus blows her away by saying, I, the one speaking to you, am he. <laughs> Wait a minute. The Christ, the Messiah has been talking to me. This wayward, sinful woman, he has known the whole time and he has not shunned me. He has not condemned me. He has not ostracized me. He's spoken with me freely and openly. He knows my sin, yet he has still offered living water. He has extended grace, not wrath. And because of that, she runs off to tell her town. The very woman who avoided the crowds has run to the crowds to go and tell them of this. In fact, I could preach another whole sermon just on why we need to encounter Jesus face to face and that when we encounter Jesus face to face, the logical reaction and the conclusion of that is to tell others. True worship always brings lost people to the Lord. And so, 
we repent. But there's one more step in right and true worship, and it's the last step that I have for you this morning. And that is true worship. As we come before God, realizing we may have had it wrong, recognizing our need for a Savior and repenting of our sin, included in true and proper worship, is requesting help. True worship includes calling upon the Lord to meet our needs. Jesus has touched on this in a sense in verse 10. When Jesus says to her, if you had known, uh, sorry, sorry, Jesus says to her, you should have asked. Do notice that I've put requesting at the end of worship, not at the beginning of worship. I don't think we come into the presence of God with our shopping list of needs and wants and requirements. We begin with the others and then as we've been led in that place of grace, so we acknowledge our need and then we bring that to God. Jesus' own brother, James, writes for us in James chapter 4 and verse 2 and says we often miss the blessings of God simply because we do not ask. Revelations 5 verse 8 describes our prayers, all of them, as incense that goes up into the presence of God as an act of worship. So when, when I ask God for my daily bread, when, when I ask God to help me each and every day, those prayers go up. As worship. Let's not miss this. Scripture implores us. It exhorts us to bring our requests to God as an act of worship. Don't fall for a false doctrine that says you should not disturb God with your trivial little issues. Yes, it might be that what you're asking for is selfish or self-centered. But if we do that in an attitude of worship, God by his Holy Spirit will slowly change our hearts and even our prayers will change. But we need to come and request help. So as I close this morning, what can we give to God to whom nothing is needed and to whom nothing can be added? What do I give to that who needs nothing? Well, the Bible makes it clear. I give worship. True and proper worship. To be right with God is to offer right worship. To realize that I might have it wrong. To recognize my need for a savior. To repent of my sin and to request for help in each and every moment of the day. In fact, this is why our own church's mission statement includes worship as the first responsive step to God. And we talk about White Rock Baptist Church seeking to be a loving community of hope in Jesus Christ. That's who we seek to be. So what's the response? Worshiping God and growing in faith to impact the world. We worship in response to Christ because our hope is in Jesus. The one who offers living water, which will quench our eternal thirst. My brothers and sisters, may we not limit God to a time and place and style of worship. May we see that we can worship God daily in each and every moment. Because God seeks true worshipers. And he invites you to worship him. Will you present yourself to him today? Let's pray together.
My Heavenly Father, as I come in a sense face to face with you, as I begin to comprehend and understand who you are, your magnificence, your your holiness, your glory, that you are all-powerful, all-present, all-wise. And as I realize that, I realize there is nothing I can give to you as though you needed it. There's nothing I can give that would add to you. For you are complete. But yet, Lord, in that completeness and in that eternal triune unity of Father, Son, and Spirit, you invite us to worship. The only fitting response. And God, you invite us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, worshiping moment by moment, day by day. Remind us, God, that worship is not simply singing in church once a week for a few minutes. Worship encompasses all of my life. It's when I'm at work doing the mundane, perhaps thinking nothing of it, even in that place, thanking you and giving you glory. It's sitting on a sofa, reading a book, and realizing that we have space to do that. It's laughing with a friend. It's hugging a family member. It's feeding someone in need. It's serving. It's caring. These are all elements that open us to worship. When we recognize our need for the Savior, when we repent of our sin in that place, when we bring our requests of help, need for help to you, in that place by your Spirit, you draw us ever more into your presence. God, as we would continue with this day, and as we would go into the week that you have in store for us, whatever may come, may we worship you. And may we be true worshipers. For we ask this in the name of our matchless and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And together we say, Amen. Amen.